Welcome to another episode of Chuck P TV. I'm your host, Chuck Privetera. Uh, after a long summer hiatus, we are jumping right back into it. We have an amazing show set for you today. I'm excited to be introducing a, uh, a friend of Westminster Consulting, Augustine, or Augie as we call him, Melendez. Uh, Augie, welcome to the show. Thank you, Chuck. It's a pleasure to have to have me here. So, yeah, it's uh, so we're going to be talking about something that, as you know, is near and dear to me, and and I know is near and dear to you. Uh, diversity issues, um, anti-racism issues, and uh, financial uh, equity and financial services, and, and there's a lot of there's kind of covers a, a broad range. Before we jump into it, why don't you just give give uh, our listeners a little bit of background, uh, maybe just how you, how you got to know Westminster and, and some of the some of the some of your roles that you've had in the past that, that make you um, qualified for this conversation. <laughs> okay, great, Chuck. So uh, Westminster has been a great partner with us on helping us manage our uh, defined pension, uh, pension plan and our 403B plan, and they've just been uh, great on extending their knowledge and expertise in, the, in that space as well as other spaces at uh, Hillside where I'm currently employed. Uh, but I've been in the field of uh, HR for over 40 years. I've worked 25 plus years in the in the for-profit world for, you know, major corporations like Kodak uh, and Paychex, uh, but also in the city schools of Rochester as the head of human resources and, and now in the, in the not-for-profit space with Hillside. So, you know, I've kind of touched bases on all the uh, opportunities. It's been very exciting and there's never a dull day. You know, uh, and that's that's a great start. You you have um, you've probably seen from an employee perspective a wide range of financial security or financial stress or financial health issues, if you will. Uh, for our listeners who don't know this, we we were set to record yesterday, but we had some technical difficulties, and I'm actually kind of glad because I sat in on a presentation today that was. Uh, talking about the wealth gap uh, between white and black Americans specifically. And I wanted to just throw something at you that I heard in this presentation this morning, that that if we actually closed the wealth gap between white and black Americans, that the uh, U.S. real GDP would rise by 4 to 6% by the year 2028. Now, that is real money. And what, what that means is that actually everyone, not just black Americans, would benefit from an inclusive uh, practices in the financial services industry. Let me get your thoughts on that, Augie. Well, I'm not surprised by that statistic and that data point because uh, uh, it, it, it would take a leveling of the playing field for us to be able to accomplish that. But unfortunately, though people either would admit that they already knew that or say they didn't, uh, the challenge is how do we go about uh, leveling that playing field so that people of color uh, who are primarily dealing with issues in inner cities and the, and the issue of poverty and lack of education, more segregation in this country today in public education than there have been in the history of this country. How do we indeed level that playing field so that, uh, uh, so that they would have an equal chance from a financial perspective to be able to uh, live the American dream? Sure. And that's, uh, that's, that's exactly true. And I, you know, I, I, it's been argued by me because I've been trying to get to the bottom of some of this, some of these conversations, recognizing that, um, you know, white males, specifically in the, in the world that I live in the 401k world, white males typically save the most amount of money. And what I've uncovered are some things that um, even in the smallest areas 
that, that um, maybe folks don't think about like communication material or, or, or specific conversations that don't resonate with a specific group of people. Tell me how important that is, Augie. Well, it's critical. You know, uh, when we think about uh, disparities and, and resources and financial gains, just think about savings and things to that effect. When you have the majority of uh, people of color working in entry-level positions where they're ba- basically making a living wage or barely making a living wage, it's difficult to make ends meet, let alone to be able to save money. And then when you come, look at a place like Hillside, right? So we hire a lot of direct care people people coming out of uh, maybe an associate's uh, degree or even a college degree at that level. And uh, we we find that uh, people of color uh, really struggle with the idea of savings and putting money in a 403B and really understanding that when they're living paycheck to paycheck. Now, there are are things that you do that, you know, automatic enrollment and automatic increases that help people understand that. But if you really dig deep into this, they're the ones that over a period of time when they hit a financial crisis are the – first ones to take a loan uh, and to impact that uh, 401k or 403b plan, which puts them in a more uh, financial stress situation. If you look at the material that that is disseminated out when we're introducing this concept, I would wager that the majority of that information shows people that don't look like them, that they can't even resonate with. Uh, So we do an injustice when we're trying to get people to think about this in a proactive way when they say, hey, material you got there has a bunch of people that represent the white majority. What about me? And why should I? I can't live that dream. I'm never going to achieve that in some cases. That may be their mindset. We have to find a way to make it uh, uh, agreeable to them to say you can have this dream as well. You know, and that's um, I've I've so so my kind of response to that is I totally agree. So you're telling me that that people playing golf pictures of people playing golf isn't resonating with everybody is that no no <laughs> no or, or or what the or what the holistic family looks like right you right know, sure. uh, 2.3 kids you know family a beautiful environment everybody dressed up looking really well where uh, that's not necessarily the the picture of 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 a minority community and by the way i don't want to paint the whole minority community of all being in that situation that affects a lot of people who are dealing with issues of poverty whether it be uh people of color or white majority. But if you look at the statistics, I think it's easy to say that the data would reflect that this affects uh, unequivocally the people of color, primarily those living in the inner cities most than it would affect others. Yes, you're, you're absolutely right. In fact, the only real cohort where it's kind of uh, intersectional is single working mothers. And that those are uh, single working mothers really of all colors struggle to save for retirement. And that's uh, but yes, for the most part, um, the first data, the early data that I saw was uh, white males are saving double what uh, white females are saying in the same age group, saving in the same age group. And then uh, it gets smaller and smaller. And I think, as you know, as someone who spent any time around diversity, it's it's usually when you see something that's different between men and women, it's usually uh, that's not the only group that's being excluded. I, I heard something interesting um, and, and I think this kind of goes along the lines of what we're talking about. Uh, Austin Channing Brown, who she's, she's written a few books, and um, she, she had said, you know, the, the color of my skin, it makes it so that when, I'm, when I work for a company, uh, you notice when I'm there and you notice when I'm not because of the color of my skin. But, but when you are designing programs and compensation and promotions and benefits, um, you, it's not as noticeable. And, and 
How important is that to, in terms of trust when it comes to employees? Well, I think it's very critical. You know, we're, we're dealing with that today uh, here at where I'm employed at today as issues when we look at our diverse workforce, that they're always looking up in the organization and they go, you know, are there people like us in the organization? And if not, what are you doing about that? And why is that important? Because uh, it is important from the standpoint of view, do I have a, a path and a future with this organization? And the way I see that path is by what you demonstrate through your actions today. So we're having a lot of conversations with our staff about the importance of ensuring that our workforce is representative at all levels of the organization and where we have gaps that we have a plan to address that. You know, it's not uncommon where people would say, uh, I think I was just reading an article around the uh, president CEO of, um, of uh, one of the major banks uh, around the uh, international company saying, you know, we just don't see diverse candidates coming to us so we can't hire them. And I'm like, with that attitude, you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. So, so what are you doing to help create partnerships and educate people about, uh, it was Wells Fargo Bank. and um, creating opportunities at, at the high school level to educate them about career opportunities in your field and then partnering with colleges of predominantly African-American uh, or where people of color attend and encouraging that kind of behavior and internships. You could change that equation if you provide leadership and put resources to it. But uh, this leader was very clear on just, you know, blaming the system for not creating the pipeline. And that's um, that's an old um, that's kind of an old story. It's kind of, we've heard that we heard that at Google. Uh, we know that um, those companies have have tried to do what it takes to make changes. It kind of is a nice segue into the the next part of the conversation that I want to have with you, Augie, because you, you're you, you serve uh, uh, in an advisory capacity to um, at least one uh, community credit union, and 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 talk about some of the work that you're, you're doing to try to educate people before these problems start to arise. Well, absolutely. So um, my experience is with a local credit union, about a billion dollars strong, that really has a commitment to the community. It's a Summit Federal Credit Union here in Rochester, and uh, uh, they have a financial literacy program that they've had for decades, where they go into our inner city schools and help children understand the importance of good financial management. Uh, which subsequently can change their life forever. Uh, and I've noticed that credit unions are more inept to do that uh, in their communities than I see the big financial institutions doing that. I think that some of them do that, but it's not part of their culture necessarily, and that, that they need to kind of weave that into their fabric in a more uh, meaningful way than I see the credit unions doing it. So uh, I'm, I, I'm, that's part of the reason that uh, I want to continue to be part of this credit union. I've been with them for over 20 years on a board capacity and in several other uh, leadership roles. And I think it's important that uh, other organizations think about how they can help their community because that education at the earliest level will help individuals understand the value and importance of, of saving for their retirement you know, the, the idea of pension plans and those things really don't no longer exist. Well, I'll tell you, credit unions in, in most cases still have those benefits for, for their employees, which, again, indicates that they're looking out for their workforce and uh, doing the right thing to enable people to think about the importance of saving for their future. Yeah, and that's that sounds like amazing work. And I think it's, uh, you know, in the financial services industry specifically, and I don't mind saying this, it's an old old white guy business. That's the way it's been set up. It's there's a lot of legacy business. And there's and, and I, I don't like to point fingers and say, you know, there's a bunch of old white guys sitting around trying to figure out how to how to exclude everybody else. But I, I just think that um, 
of course, they are going to have a hard time engaging people of color, uh, BIPOC, um, in in terms of uh, the conversations because they just don't even know know where to begin. I have a, a, a little story. A friend of mine who's uh, he's about twenty years younger than me. He's a younger black guy, and he had he and I had very different upbringings. He grew up in in a few different homes, and his mother he lost his mother at a very young age, and I grew up in a very um, upper middle class uh, suburb. And he, he told me he saves 12% in his 401k plan. And I asked him why. And he said, you know, I look at it uh, as a safety net that I never had growing up. I never had this sort of backstop, this this idea that there was anything there to catch me if I fell. And, and I sort of view um, this as an opportunity to provide myself with something like that. Yet, you know, I don't see Fidelity or Vanguard or T. Rowe Price putting that in any of their printed materials for why to save in a, a 401k plan. How, how much of an impact do you think that might have on, on people who have, from a cultural perspective, were not having the kitchen table conversations that I was having with my dad about the importance of saving in 401k plans? Well, it's critical, uh, but how could you expect those conversations to happen when uh, maybe the parents of children in poverty don't even have a checking account and don't even have a savings account? They don't understand what that means. You know, and to your comment earlier, you know, I don't believe for a moment that there are a bunch of white guys sitting around a table trying to figure out how to exclude people. I just don't think they are having the conversation of how to include them. Right. Uh, you know, it's easy for them to go after the Jay-Z's uh, or the Beyonce's of the world that are, you know, billionaires because they can try to help them become even more prosperous. The real challenge is how do we help the people in our community that don't have the checking account, that don't have a savings account, that don't understand the value of that, uh, who are living day to day and not even thinking about tomorrow or their future. That's where the real challenge is. Now, here, here is something that, that will make them think, right? If you think about uh, how people of color sometimes try to help themselves and you think of a company, FUBU, you know what, you ever hear FUBU? They're, yep. they're an apparel company. You know, mm -hmm. Do you know what FUBU stands for? For us, by us. That's right. And that's a multi million dollar business, uh, what would happen if the financial industry was now led by a diverse organization that targeted indeed people of color and brought those resources uh, to that pool of people who are in dire need of that resource? They will be taking away market share uh, from financial institutions. Maybe that'll get their attention. So, you know, you're really speaking my language there, Augie. And one of the things that, uh, so I had some I had a nice opportunity to hear the the head of uh, the CEO of MasterCard at the time, this was a couple of years ago, uh, present on his, and he would talk about how MasterCard is well known as this very diverse organization from a corporate financial services perspective, and he would say my job as CEO is to make sure that every individual at my company feels like they belong here and are safe here, and then of course I raised my hand and said how about your cardholders? <laughs> and he said, yeah, well, we have a diversity problem with our cardholders. So, so how, do, you know, what, what's, and I think the work that you're doing is important uh, with the credit union because it's the usage of the utilization of these, of these benefits. So, so that kind of ties me into this sort of next area that I want to explore. I mean, it's our feelings in the work that I do that, um, that there's a lot of people that are under a lot of stress from their finances. And uh, we know what kind of ill effects that can have on your emotional well-being, on your on your day-to-day -day demeanor, on your physical well-being even. Uh, how, how much of a game changer would it be to really focus on the, the, the financial stress of the lower income employees in our workplaces? 
Oh, it would be huge. And, uh, you know, to helping people understand, you know, it's easy to, to, to lend people money who are kind of A paper and B paper, right? But when you start to get to below B and people will start to worry about whether or not this is a financial risk, my experience again, and I'm trying to endorse credit unions here, but I'm just saying my experience has been that the credit unions will work with people that are below uh, those thresholds to say, how do we get you up a little bit higher? How do we work out a plan to get you there, to get you timely on your payment so that you could increase your credit rating? I I'm not seeing the other bigger financial institutions really care that way. They are more interested in kind of the bottom line. Uh, and if a person is struggling, there isn't that kind of outreach. So I think that's important. And for employers to provide that kind of services is a wonderful uh, opportunity and, and challenge. But the issue is back to a word you used earlier, Chuck, is this issue of trust. Uh, because employers uh, uh, sometimes have a reputation uh, based on individuals' own experiences. If I can't trust you with how you handled me during a crisis in my personal life, how am I gonna trust you that I'm going to now listen to you about financial advice or about the future of my my uh, my retirement. So uh, it really is about, you know, employee engagement. It really is about building trust. And around this issue about diversity, equity and inclusion is to really be genuine about it and, and not simply uh, just talk uh, a good game, but to be able to have actions to support that. And that's that's kind of I, I wanted to that's a nice little sort of segue to the next thing that I want to talk about. I mean, you've obviously had a lot of experience with with diversity, equity and inclusion. And I think um, we've all been doing a lot of talking about this. I, I know I have for the last few years and then more specifically in the last few months. What what do we have to do to move this from a DEI or diversity or inclusion conversation to a, an active anti-racism conversation to where we're we're instead of talking about things or. Uh, initiatives or, or training, we're actually putting in um, or making changes that are actively trying to level the playing field for our black and brown and others, employees in the workplace. Well, that you know, we're seeing it happen today all over the country with all the protests that are going on. You know, I go back to uh, Kaepernick when he started this kneeling down stuff, and now uh, others are doing it, and uh, and people, you know, misunderstood, you know, what, what that was about, disrespecting the flag. It really wasn't about that. Uh, you know, what we really need to understand this, it starts with a conversation, right? Uh, if you want people to come to work and feel like they're totally committed, but, you know, today in the headlines, there was something about police brutality with a person of color, and I'm a person of color, and I come to work bringing that burden on my shoulder. How committed could I be to giving you 100%? And how committed am I to believe in trusting you as my leader that you really understand what's going on in my mind and in my community, but you're not talking about it. And you're not giving me an opportunity to express my feelings and to discuss this. You know, I was at a forum of HR people recently and one HR person, when I, when this conversation was brought up says, well, we refer those individuals to our employee assistance program. And I'm like, whoa, oh, no, man, you're missing the whole boat on this. This is about individual credibility between an employee and their supervisor. So it is so critical that we allow for that opportunity to happen and to trust that conversation. You know, my favorite expression around diversity, equity, inclusion issues, you have to understand that these are uncomfortable conversations, but you must be able to lean into discomfort, lean into discomfort. And that's a very difficult thing to ask our white majority leaders to do, but also for our people of color to feel that they can trust them in a conversation where they are truly exposing what they feel and the vulnerabilities of all the of, of all of that conversation. 
You know, one of my favorite quotes from one of my favorite people, uh, Brene Brown, she said, when a white person says these conversations are uncomfortable, that's the definition of privilege. Yep. And I think to, for me, uh, you know, people like us, we, we get it. So how, how do we... That is the big barrier, right? I mean, leadership sometimes says, you know, I don't want disruption like this. I don't, how do, how does leadership, I mean, does it have to be about the business case all the time? Does it have to be about the ROI or is there, is there enough support and compassion and empathy out there to make real change this time around? Well, I'd like to see a little bit about both. I think, you know, at the end of the day, there is the ROI, there is the business case. But again, I go back to my statement earlier, how productive, productive can people be if they're bringing this burden to their work every day uh, when incidents happen right in their community or may happen to them on their way to work? I tell you, I've heard stories and these conversations that our CEO and I have been holding with our employee base throughout the organization. We hear stories of employees that come to work in the evening because we work in our residential campuses, you know, uh, 24, 7, 365. And, and Sometimes they come to work at odd hours and getting pulled over by a police officer because they happen to be a person of color uh, mm-hmm. and the way that they're treated and uh, the, the lack of trust or distrust that they have to experience. And then they show up at work and we expect them just to do their job. Really? Uh, I think it's uh, an experience that uh, those of us who have not have had it uh, are really truly privileged to not understand what it is to have that experience through the lens of a person of color. Yeah, and I and I uh, that's uh, very thoughtful of you to even be thinking about those conversations at at um, as part of the employee experience because I guess that that really is. I mean, I'm just on my way to work and I have to deal with that. I mean, I can't as a white guy, I can't ever imagine the stress that goes with that and having to start my day like that on a you know semi regular basis. And I think um, you know those are. That, so from a leadership perspective, I think we can agree that that's where it's got to start. What What is the sort of, what is a good first step look like for an organization like Hillside or, or like any other organization when it comes to really trying to uh, go from performative or uh, discussion and training related to making real change? Well, I think it starts with first listening, right? And you got to understand what exactly are people experiencing and what are they feeling? And then uh, you also have to be smart enough to ask for creative solutions because you know what? Just because you're the leader, you might be in a space, obviously a space here that you may have no clue as to what a proper uh, response or a solution might be. So you have to be open to hearing uh, what might be a, a, a solution to it. And you know, many of these solutions are kind of really low-hanging fruit, the opportunity to uh, create a mentorship program, the opportunity to create a, a group of, of uh, people of color being able to come together uh, to support one another and to have leadership supports. Now, a lot of organizations that are large, when I worked at Kodak, I know Xerox had it, they had affinity groups, right? Mm-hmm. And affinity groups would come together with like kinds of issues, men of uh, uh, African-American, Hispanic, uh, LGBT community, the uh, a disabled community, whatever it may be. Uh, and that created a tremendous venue for people like each other to be able to have a, a forum where they could talk openly about issues. Uh, and then what we found later on in life was that people started to join those groups that were not of that representation. So white men, white women started to join 
the African-American affinity group, and listening to the conversations actually helped them to become better leaders because they became more informed. And that allowed them the opportunity to then do their own research and to be more educated, because this is not about training, Chuck. Training is the last thing you want to do when you're trying to fix a problem. This is about (laughs) education, right? Mm -hmm. We want to educate people. And if you educate somebody and at some point you hope that that little light bulb goes off, right, that'll allow the opportunity for that person to want to actually explore things, not because they're being asked to, but because now they have a really learning desire to understand it more. And that's, I mean, so you touched on one one thing there that uh, is near and dear to my heart, and it's, uh, we didn't use the word yet, but it's it's allyship. And that's um, sort of what I wouldn't mind ending our, our chat on is, uh, I've, I've learned what the definition of that is and committed myself to become an ally to as many underrepresented groups as I can. And it's, uh, it's been a challenge. It's been uh, very actually rewarding to me, which is certainly not what I'm in it for, but um, what kind of advice do you have to, to, to white folks out there that, that maybe just are frightened or uncomfortable or, uh, about the allyship conversation or about the a yeah. journey to allyship? Yeah. So, you know, let me tell you, white majority people uh, are critical to finding solutions to how we're going to move forward, both whether it be at, at, an, at an employee group level or an employer group level in a community or in a national level. They can't be silent and absent in this conversation. You know, if you looked at uh, many of the people who were protesting in many of our communities over this Black Lives Matter thing, I've never seen in any such protest in the history of our country that it was so diverse in it by itself. So we need to encourage more of that behavior. We also have to uh, be mindful of the fact that uh, these are difficult conversations and at times you could feel very vulnerable. And uh, so you have to be willing to uh, put your vulnerability out there and to be able to listen back uh, from you know, your own maybe lack of knowledge in the space or lack of, of, of your, your own ignorance on the subject to say that I may say things that may not really sound what I like, I really wanna tell you this, but this is the only words I could find and feeling comfortable that you can have that exchange and dialogue with people. But without the white majority, I will tell you, it won't go anywhere because why? Because the white majority have the power. If you look at most organizations like a pyramid, in a corporate setting, you know, the CEO at the top, predominantly a white majority, if you get down in the organization, it's not until you kind of get into a couple of layers that you start to see more diversity uh, in any way or form. So you need to understand that. The other is, you know, when we think about mentoring programs and the like, the white majority of people who are in positions of power and influence, they're the ones that have to step up and create and embrace this because uh, there are not just not enough of, of us and people of colors in these roles that are going to make change. And oh, by the way, uh, because there's not enough, uh, it becomes a burden to some extent of being able to support as many requests as we get to help our, our colleagues who are looking for that support. So uh, I really encourage our white majority to learn more about this, find a way to uh, embrace it. And, you know, one step at a time, you, you know, this is a journey. This is not a, a sprint. Uh, and you need to stay at it uh, consistently and long-term, and there'll be hiccups along the line. But at the end of the day, there is a return on investment on this, right? The return on investment is that you have a workforce that feels supported and engaged, that wants to be there, that becomes very loyal. You think about the Latino community and and their history of loyalty to places uh, and products that they feel have been good to them 
or that uh, they have been supportive. Those are the kinds of things I think any employer would be interested in. Yeah, and that and that's and that's critical, isn't it? It's the it's the making sure that every employee wants to come to work every day, and and it's we know we could put the ROI there, but it's that's less and less important. And the, I think every good leader understands the importance of having folks that are engaged and and look forward to coming to work every day. Augie, I uh, I can't thank you enough for your time. I, I knew your background and some of the work that you're doing was going to be really critical to a good dialogue here. And, and I really appreciate uh, everything you've had to say today. And, and, and like I said, your time and certainly your relationship with Westminster. I don't know if you have any parting thoughts for us today. No, I thank you for the opportunity. You know, if I got one person who hears this, who thinks differently about how they want to approach this, then we've achieved our goal. Thank you for the That's, opportunity. You bet. Thank, thank you, Augie. Have a great day. You as well. Bye-bye. Okay.